Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD bodybuilder, back with another episode on Swole Radio. Today I'm joined again by Chris Bearcat, who is a Master's of Science and adjunct professor at the University of Tampa and a very highly esteemed coach and researcher in our field. So thanks again for being on the show. Thank you very, very much for having me on, man. Good to see you again. So today we're going to be first touching on Chris's prep, which he's in the middle of right now, and then going on to some deep diving into programming in terms of bodybuilding for microcycle and session design. So how to set up your actual bodybuilding workouts and how to lay them out throughout the week. I think this is going to provide a lot of value to people out there who really want to maximize hypertrophy and are serious and analytical about the process. So this is going to be a great session. So yeah, just starting off, Chris, we just touched on it briefly off air, but I'd love to hear an update on your prep. Yeah, absolutely, man. So uh, this prep is way different. Every prep's different than the previous ones, um, but this prep is different, different like mentally, emotionally, and uh, I guess the purpose of it is way different. Um, and physically, everything's going on. So right now, I'm, I'm 10 and a half weeks out from my first show of the year. Um, I don't plan on really having a very long season. I plan on maybe doing two shows, um, definitely doing one show. Um, so it's not like I'm going to extend it all the way out until November for the world competition. I kind of just want to focus on my clients and just focus on being a coach to the very end of the season. But yeah, I'm 10 and a half weeks out right now. I'm looking to compete on uh, late September, uh, very early October. And uh, things are going pretty well. Uh, I predict I have about 12 pounds of body fat to drop in 10 weeks. Mm. Um, so some people feel like that is a, a high or fast rate of loss. Um, but I think it's okay considering I'm 172-ish pounds. Um, I'm still losing between that you know, 0.5 to 1.0% per week. So um, I'd rather get in and get out and kind of get the contest prep uh, done and dusted a bit quicker rather than stay in the trenches for so, so long um, because it is psychologically taxing and then it kind of uh, limits your social ability, uh, stuff going on with, you know, family, friends, relationships, and uh, also kind of inhibits how much energy I can put into other projects. So uh, work related tasks, business things, even my clients, right? So um, it, it is something that's selfish and requires a lot of time and energy. And I'm kind of just trying to take myself to a, a very, uh, a very deep place from like an introspection kind of uh, standpoint, um, grow from this process, but I don't want to just drag it out as a, as a lot of us do in this uh, natural bodybuilding field. So I am doing a shorter prep, so to speak. I, I did start at 21 weeks out though. So uh, it's not like a super quick prep, um, but you know, these days people are prepping for like 26, 30, 34 plus weeks. It's kind of crazy. It's, Feel like the pendulum has swung to the other extreme where i think people are prepping for too long right now so uh that's a quick uh synapse without me you know continuing to uh jumble on yeah i know it's going to be easy for us to collapse into a bodybuilding prep show because uh, i love talking about this stuff but sure. what are what are your macros right now yeah so right now um my macros on training days are approximately 50 grams of fat 250 carb and 225 protein. And then on non-training days, it's about 60 grams of fat, 150 carb 
and 225 protein. So there's a hundred calorie, a hundred carbohydrate drop off between training and non-training days. And I just increased my fats by about 10 grams on non-training days. But, um, I would say that's pretty aggressive. Um, especially being this far out, it's more aggressive than I've been in the past, but I'm also fairly sedentary besides the time I'm spending in the gym. Um, so, you know, the 90 minutes, to two hours I'm in the gym. Yeah. My calorie expenditure is, you know, moderate at that time, but otherwise I'm behind uh, a desk or seated like we both are right now, you know, doing work on the computer or whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely something I find challenging when I'm dieting, especially when you have, you know, more of a desk job and, for me, it's, yeah, it's all at a computer with radiology. So yeah, my calories are really low. And especially since I, I don't have time for just a lot of cardio. So it all has to be done with the, with the diet. Absolutely. But anyways, before we get off track, maybe let's move on to some uh, train design discussion and uh, sure. get into some content for these people. Uh, so yeah, sure. so starting off, I want to kind of start at the bottom and work our way up. So starting to just talk a little bit about session design for just some programming tips for people. So in terms of just setting up your workout, I usually recommend for most people, especially beginners, that they start off kind of with their heavier, uh, big free weight movements first, and then kind of move on to the lighter, more isolation, single joint work. Mm -hmm. um, what are your sort of guidelines for people in terms of that? Yeah, I do that for, I would say at least 50% of my sessions, but not all of them. Um, for example, on my leg training days, I almost never start with a compound. I usually start with some sort of like hamstring isolation curl to start um, just to warm up the knees, warm up the hips a little bit, and also kind of psychologically prepare me uh, for that compound lift. I, I guess I would also say that the compound movements for the legs are typically a little bit more intense than like a, a compound movement for the upper body. So if you compare a super heavy set of hack squats compared to a heavy set of dumbbell incline press or a lat pull down, I think you need to kind of psychologically prepare a bit more for something like a hack squat compared to an upper body movement. So oftentimes um, I do my, my big compound lifts early on in the session but not always first. Um, I think it just depends how many movements you have planned out for that day. Um, and something that I'm a big advocate for, something that I really value is ensuring that your exercise selection is perfectly in line with your primary goal. Um, so I, I know a lot of people kind of prioritize volume or intensity, and they talk about volume, intensity, and frequency all the time. But to me, like when you look at the hierarchy of training programming, mm -hmm. when it comes to hypertrophy, I really, really get caught up on exercise selection and then sequencing within those exercises. So we can kind of chat about that a bit. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's pretty common for what's kind of when you look on um, the internet and stuff, a lot of like popular um training gurus will just say yeah like it's got to be all about the squat bench and deadlift and like you got to start off with your strength um programming movements but that also kind of assumes that a lot of people you know it depends on their goals right and a lot of people they kind of assume that people have equal interest in strength and hypertrophy or maybe like a, even a priority interest in strength 
And sometimes it's important to just step back and tease apart your goals. So especially if your goal is hypertrophy, the rules aren't so clear cut necessarily. 100%, 100%. Yeah, like uh, you touched on the big three really quick. And right now, um, out of the big three, I'm only doing conventional deadlifts. I'm not doing barbell uh, flat presses and I'm not doing barbell squats at the moment, uh, just because I feel like they're inefficient compared to other options at training that target musculature. So I can get a better chest stimulus utilizing a certain machine press or even a dumbbell press um, compared to a barbell press personally, based on my skeletal structure, um, and my frame. And then, you know, in regards to the barbell back squat, I have a terrible stimulus to fatigue ratio with that movement, um, mm. where I can't load the movement to a very high degree, um, to tax my quadriceps and glutes. Um, I kind of feel like my, my breaking point in that lift is more so like core strength and stability and just my structure isn't great there. Um, whereas I can load up something like a hack squat and get a ton of mechanical tension on my quadriceps, um, compared to the barbell back squat. So it's way more efficient for me to select a different exercise than be super caught up with, you know, doing a barbell lift just because it's part of the big three or, you know, some people consider it the holy grail of building impressive legs or an impressive chest. Yeah. And I think that's something that's important for people to keep in mind when they kind of see these studies coming out on saying, oh, you get superior hypertrophy with X manipulation of your exercises, but you have, you have to take that with a grain of salt because everyone's kind of skeletal structure is a little bit different. And I think that looking at your own sort of muscle insertions and muscle belly lengths and angles on that, everyone is going to have their own set of ideal exercises in terms of their stimulus to fatigue. And you can't know that until you try it out. Right. And absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and going to the literature really quick, uh, a lot of times you may see that a lot of studies are utilizing the barbell bench press or the barbell back squat and the deadlift. Um, so a lot of people are trying to, you know, implement what researchers have studied or, you know, put that into practice. Just a really quick side note. One thing I will say a lot of times, the reason that's being studied is because a lot of these labs actually have super limited equipment. Um, so they actually don't have access to a hack squat or a Smith machine or, um, really any sort of machine. Some labs are literally just, you know, a barbell, a squat rack, and that's why you're seeing the squat bench and the deadlift. So, you know, depending on what research study you're looking at and what exercise lab that's taking place in, um, it might not be because the movement's actually superior, but that might just be what the research have access to at the time. So just a little side note for people to take into account. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Some of the, the meta workings of research and how that yeah. affects people. Um, coming back to what we were saying about starting off with your big, uh, free weight movement, what are your thoughts on pre-exhaustion? So in classic bodybuilding lore, you'll have people talking about, you've got to pre-exhaust the muscle, say a classic example of this would be to say, start with a chest fly and then move on to a bench press where they'll say that you want to fatigue the muscle, pre-fatigue the muscle. Yeah. Yeah. Generally speaking, I think it's pretty unnecessary for most lifters. Um, I think that as long as you're getting stronger on your primary compound movements, um, you should continue to program 
your exercises in that manner um, until you kind of stole out or unless you're in an extremely advanced trainee where the loads that you're working with on your top sets are so freaking heavy that they're so centrally fatiguing and or potentially uh, causing, you know, joint uh, greater increases of risk for joint injuries. That's when pre-exhaustion should come into play. So I think for extremely advanced, extremely strong people that are focused on hypertrophy, I think it can be very beneficial, but for the uh, general gym goer, it's pretty unnecessary and their time would probably be better spent just getting stronger on those primary lifts. So uh, just to provide more context, right? Let's just say, you know, a lot of people talk about relative strength. So they say like, oh, 90% of your 1RM, 90% um, of your 1RM and my 1RM, yeah, it's 90%. Um, but that absolute value is still slightly different than our relative values, right? So mm -hmm. if someone's squatting 405 for six reps compared to someone squatting 225 for six reps, um, even if that relative intensity is the same, and that's their six rep max, for example, um, that 405 is going to um, basically provide a higher risk of injury, as well as it is going to induce more fatigue on that central nervous system. So for that really strong person, um, it might be applicable for them to do leg extensions and hamstring curls first. So now instead of squatting 405, they're squatting 365, um, but they're getting that same stimulus, right? It's the relative intensity stays the same, but they're using a lighter absolute load. So for those, you know, very advanced people or very highly trained bodybuilders, I think pre-exhaustion um, can be beneficial, but for the most part, it's, it's not too, uh, it's not warranted to be applied uh, very commonly. Yeah, no, I think I actually agree fully. I think that's a great point where, it's important for people to think about the level of the lifter when they're looking at their, you know, fitness influencers or favorite IFBB pros training. And for someone who, yeah, is say, say they're doing, you know, hyper training in higher rep ranges for say like five or six plate squats. I mean, that's going to cause so much damage and just come a lot with a lot of connective tissue stress where yeah. it actually makes sense for them to, Put that later in the workout so that they're already fatigued and they're forced to lift less yeah and as people get more advanced you start understanding that the game starts becoming about uh how to get the same stimulus with less weight yes but this doesn't become a problem until you actually are strong so i mean for beginners it's like you see people trying to use these ifbb pro techniques when they're if yes yeah, if they're only squatting like 225 or less um you it's it's not the same game and you're to at in the early stages you probably will benefit from developing that strength aspect initially so 100 for people 100%. to be be clear about who they're learning from or copying for sure specifically and then i guess on a related note the other thing people will do is actually do like pre-fatigue supersets so I guess the other application people will talk about is say in something like a squat where for some people, the quads might not be the limiting factor, maybe starting off with a leg extension and then immediately squatting after might create a situation where the quads give out first. Yeah. Yeah. It's a interesting thought process. Um, 
I personally wouldn't utilize that. So that you're saying they're supersetting it, right? They're using pre-exhaustion and then supersetting that in pseudo compounds. We actually did a study on this, an acute study in our lab. Uh, the head author was William Wallace. This was years back. We looked at multiple advanced training techniques. So we looked at pre-exhaustion. We looked at two different types of pre-exhaustion. Mm -hmm. um, we looked at supersets. We looked at drop sets and we looked at force negatives. Um, we we're looking at certain acute variables like blood lactate and volume load and stuff like that. Um, generally speaking, we didn't really find any of them to be super advantageous. Um, but in that sense, if you're utilizing something like a leg extension first and then going into your squat, yeah, your quads might be the limiting factor on that squat, but you also know you're forcing yourself to use less load most likely. So the amount of mechanical tension is also going to go down. Um, however, that can be a tool or a technique to kind of maximize motor unit recruitment. So you were kind of saying that maybe when you normally squat, the quads aren't the limiting factor, something else kind of gives out first. We do understand that taking a muscle uh, close to failure or to failure is the best way to maximize uh, muscle activation or motor unit recruitment. So in that sense, it can be advantageous. At least you're kind of stimulating the entire muscle um, rather than failing because of some other confounding factor and not the quadriceps itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. it's cool that you did research on that. You know, just speaking, speak of the devil. I mean, these are the kinds of topics I was actually going to bring up later uh, in terms of the other things. So I guess, and yeah, in terms of supersets, I'm, I'm actually a big fan of doing antagonist supersets. I think that they're just a great way for people to save time in the gym. What are your thoughts? hundred uh, percent. I'm, I'm an advocate and a practitioner of them as well. Um, for example, some of my days I actually program chest and back together. Um, and I just do, you know, antagonist agonist supersets. So, um, if I'm doing like a incline chest press, I'm doing a like iliac lat pull down. If I'm doing a, um, normal kind of flat press or I'm really targeting the sternal pecs, I'll do some sort of row that really targets my uh, lumbar lats. And then if I'm doing like a decline press, I would superset that with something that's kind of targeting more of the thoracic fibers of the lat. Um, so yeah, I'm a big fan of that. I think it's really time efficient. Um, and I do the same thing with like bicep tricep work just for for time purposes at the very least. So that is a great way. Uh, there, there is some research showing too that it might actually enhance your overall training volume. Um, so that's quite interesting. At the very least, it can't hurt and it could help by saving you time. Will you ever use giant sets or even you know circuit type training where you'll include more than two exercises in a rotation? I have, um, I do for a few specific things. So really quick example, um, on some leg days, I kind of have like a, a primer circuit where I'm doing like hip adduction, uh, Jefferson squats and like a glute medius kickback. So I kind of just pair those three together. Um, 
it's more of uh that's something I'm not taking to like an RPE of eight, nine or 10. And it's more of like something that's done between six and seven, just to kind of get the session started. Um, also again, improve time efficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also do it with things like deltoids just to kind of increase the amount of stimulus over time. So like to increase the density of the workout, um, I might do something like front raises, lateral raises and rear delt flies all back to back to back. So that would technically be like three exercises, um, kind of paired together. Um, and you get a really nice stimulus with something like that, man, because especially with a, a relatively small muscle, like the deltoid, you can create a lot of hyperemia and get a really good pump or cell swelling effect um, by kind of pairing those three together, especially towards the tail end of the session where you're not overly concerned about like maximizing mechanical tension. You're not trying to lift super heavy weight on these particular exercises. You might be more focused on maximizing metabolic stress and that cell swelling. Um, so depending on like where you program it in and how you do it, it, it could be applicable. Um, what about you? Do you do any giant sets or circuits? I mainly do kind of two set um, supersets. Occasionally, I will kind of put in three when I'm you kind of doing the more isolation type work at the end. So say like cable, you know, cable um, press downs with some side raises and maybe with a some cable row. Um, sure. Kind of with the just to save time basically and. I kind of like the idea of having long, the longer rest periods as well. Sure. As long as you're not fully cooling off, it can help to maintain your performance throughout your, your workout and yeah. kind of reap that uh, productive volume. Yeah. 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 And it, it can be applied in different ways. So like if time was really uh, an issue and I needed to get in uh, a good training stimulus in a short period of time, I could, I could definitely utilize the giant set. Uh, something that comes to mind is you can almost do like a mechanical drop set or giant set with, you know, a particular muscle group where you're doing similar exercises, but different exercises paired together. Um, so like a quick example would be, let's just say you want to blast your triceps as quickly as possible. Uh, let's say you're at a cable column. You can do like tricep kickbacks on that cable column until, you know, basically muscular failure. And then your second movement would just be like a normal tricep push down where your shoulder is now at zero degrees rather than extended. And then your final tricep exercise would be like an overhead. So you kind of work through the triceps entire range of motion in one set or one giant set where you did boom, kickbacks, shoulders extended, triceps shortened boom, shoulders neutral, triceps kind of in this mid-range, and then boom, triceps lengthened, shoulders flexed, right? So those are some ways to just get in a high-quality stimulus in a short period of time. I I think it's appropriate, just uh, not something I would program on a weekly basis, um, but something that can be thrown in. Yeah, and in terms of drop sets, what are your thoughts on those in general? I, I actually quite like doing drop sets kind of just for the that kind of metabolic stress kind of slipping it in at the end of the workout. Yeah. Yeah. I do as well. Um, right now on a lot of my major movements, my major compound lifts, I I generally do two working sets where I do like a very heavy top set at the low end of a rep range. So 
quick example, let's say my rep range for an exercise is six to 10. Um, mm -hmm. My first true hard working set would be the heaviest weight for six reps. Mm -hmm. And then I do a back off set where it's lighter weight and I'm aiming for 10. Sometimes literally I auto regulate this. So based on how I feel, um, literally based on like how I'm perceiving that stimulus to be, if I, if I feel like I got enough effective reps or not, I might extend that second working set by making it a drop set. Um, so maybe my first set do a heavy set for six, my second set, I do a lighter set, but as heavy as possible for 10. If for some reason, I just feel like I need more, I'll drop that weight and do, you know, maybe four or five more reps as a drop set. Um, so I, I do implement them right now in a very auto-regulated manner. Um, for some clients, I have it programmed in on specific exercises at specific time of the workout. So I think it's a, a good tool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the thing I like about them is just the fact that you're kind of able to get that additional metabolic work at a relatively low fatigue cost in terms of the connective tissues is the way I see yes. it just because you're lowering the weight and, and this it's relatively less uh, costly than doing some of the other, you know, intensity techniques, like really intense force negatives or those kinds of things. I, I agree, man. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are talking about effective reps these days. Um, if you take a set two or very close to failure, and then you drop the load um, without resting, and then you just continue that set and you do an appropriate drop set, we basically know that those few reps that you are doing within the drop set are quote unquote effective reps, or there's a high level of motor unit recruitment there and full muscle activation there. So I am a fan of it. Um, I think things like myo reps or, you know, DC training, uh, it's also applicable, but I would say it's way more fatiguing from a central nervous system perspective because you're keeping the load high. You're not reducing the load. You're just resting a bit and taking, you know, three more sets to failure if you're doing like myo reps or something like that. So, yeah, I, th I think there's a place for it. Um, again, as long as like your big rocks make sense and your foundation makes sense and you're actually progressing and tracking your loads and sticking to the same exercises within a micro cycle. And you're not just doing random shit every workout. Mm -hmm. I think it's absolutely appropriate. The problem is I think a lot of people that implement advanced training techniques might not even be on a, on a specific program. They kind of just go into the gym and do a bunch of advanced stuff without really tracking and monitoring. And they're kind of spinning their wheels because they're not tracking their lifts and they're not progressing on lifts. They're just having like really hard workouts from session to session, but there's no structure. Um, so I think because a lot of quote unquote bros did that and approached their training in a non-structured fashion, everyone who was way more structured said like, Oh, these advanced training techniques are stupid and all the bros do it. Um, I think there is a balance where it's like, you can have a really smart program and still incorporate those advanced techniques, uh, when appropriate and applicable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I really like that. I think that people can easily lose sight of what's important, you know, when we start getting excited talking about these uh, advanced techniques and just remembering that having a consistent training programming with solid progressive overloaded place is not replaceable. And, uh, once you have those main elements and you know that you're still progressing, then you can start playing around with these when you have specific applications sure. for them.
do you use uh, failure training much? And I, I guess how often? I do. Uh, almost every session, I would take a set super close to failure. Um, again, if you want, some people are getting like overly technical with this stuff today. So go, oh, it's not failure unless like the weight pinned you and like you actually failed, you know? Um, so yeah, basically every session I take a set to where I'm very confident I could not get an additional rep. So, you know, zero reps in reserve. Um, and again, I do that a lot on a top set and potentially a back off set. Mm. Um, so I would say during a training session, I take at least three sets to, to what I consider failure. Um, sometimes up to six to nine sets uh, to failure. So I do that quite regularly. Um, I don't do this mesocycle progression that has become very popularized right now. Mm -hmm. um, I do have like intro weeks or primer weeks. If I'm starting a new mesocycle, introducing new exercises and a new sequencing of exercises. So that primer week may be at a lower uh, RPE and lower intensity overall. And then once I'm in that mesocycle and I'm in a good training groove, I'm approaching those working sets at a very high intensity, super close to failure or to failure. And then I don't plan my deloads um, proactively. I don't schedule them. It's more of a reactive thing based off of auto-regulation, biofeedback, sleep, stress, performance, motivation, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that in the modern or current climate, there's a there's kind of there was almost maybe sort of a little bit more so a little bit back, but there was almost this like stigma against failure training that came out of the science-based community where people were like, oh, volume is king. So it's better if you stick, stay away from failure and maximize volume. Um, but I kind of see it as like this multi-dimensional optimization where the, your, your training intensity is going to be inversely related to volume. But at the same time, the quality of that volume also depends, will, will be different for different people for different intensities. So I think some people probably do benefit from a lower volume or higher intensity approach. And some people would benefit kind of from the other way around. But uh, the other thing is that training intensely unequivocally, unequivocally is more um, time efficient, I guess. So like if someone is very short on time, I think that if they're already doing low volume, then they like, just because of life constraints, then if you just tell them, oh, stay away from failure, they might be losing out on stimulus as well. hundred percent. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting too, because a lot of people, you know, that claim to be, or are in the evidence-based space, whatever you want to call it, um, when they look at the scientific literature, a lot of them like fail to mention, or maybe they don't realize most of the chronic training studies that we do have, which unfortunately are typically anywhere from like six to 12 weeks long, you know, exercise science really doesn't have much research that's longer than 12 weeks. Mm. So we're not studying like long-term periodization. We're really looking at like one or two mesos at most. Um, but more importantly, from the literature I've read and, you know, I've, I've been in this field for the past five, six years now, these studies are supposed to be taken to failure. So all the participants 
are supposed to be going to true failure in, in, in the majority of these studies. Um, so it's like some people are trying to take the findings of these studies, especially when it comes to volume, but then they're not necessarily, um, they're not also mentioning that these st studies that are assessing volume also had their subjects go to failure. So it's like they want to use one piece of the puzzle while negating the other piece of the puzzle just to support like their beliefs or, or their, their thought processes or whatever they're advocating. So I think there's a lot of missing pieces to that puzzle there. And um, there's still so much research that needs to be done, especially like high quality research. So yeah, there, there's more questions than answers at the, at this moment in that regard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's an interesting topic for sure. And fascinating to see the research starting to unfold. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on the placement of stretch type movements in your workout? Will you specifically like place them at the end, which a lot of people advocate or does it matter? It's funny you mentioned that. So, um, we have a paper that was just accepted for publication on interest at stretching. Um, so it's, it's interesting. There's a, you mentioned stretch like exercises. Um, and you didn't mention like the advanced training technique. So I'll kind of just talk about exercises that overload a lengthened position yeah. first. Um, I do think that's the best time and place to implement them towards the later end of your session. Um, so I'll provide a quick example. So like, let's say you're doing a Romanian deadlift, right? That movement overloads the hamstrings in their lengthened position. And it's a very like eccentric dominant movement where it can create a lot of muscle damage. So what I've seen in practice um, is if I were to do that movement first, it's going to negatively impact the amount of load and my volume that I can produce on my subsequent exercises within that session. And that's not really what I want. Whereas if I do exercises that maybe overload the shortened position first and then get into a compound and then finish with my RDL, um, I can still RDL heavy loads and it, those previous exercises didn't like negatively impact that exercise that is focused on that stretch portion or that lengthened position. Um, so I, I do think it's important to put it towards the end. Um, if you were to kind of compare that to an upper body example, it would be like doing dumbbell flies before doing a bench press. Um, I think it would just negatively impact your bench press performance and your your volume load there. So yeah, I, I do program like exercises that kind of overload a shortened position early in the session, and then kind of go through that mid range in the middle and then go through the lengthened or stretched position towards the end of the session. That's generally how I program. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I like that. I, I do the same. I mean, I think that the, the heavy weighted stretch will just, it, it, it kind of zaps your muscle a bit. And when you want to optimize the overall productivity of the whole session, you've got to think about your other exercises and making sure you get the most out of all of them as an aggregate. hundred percent. One can of my, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Can I add something there? So yeah. yeah, like again, using the RDL as an example, uh, that exercise alone, is pretty fatiguing from a central standpoint. So I'm not even looking at the hamstring specifically, but generally speaking, it's a pretty difficult exercise. 
Um, and then another movement that I see a lot of people do that are overly focused on the big three is I know a lot of people that let's say they have a pull session, they'll deadlift first, and then they'll do their vertical pulls and horizontal pulls or diagonal pulls, whatever you want to call it afterwards. Um, I actually perform conventional deadlifts as like my third or fourth exercise on a pull day rather than my first exercise. So um, again, I, I actually think that the deadlift is overrated as a back builder. Um, and by doing that movement first, you are absolutely destroying your ability to perform those isotonic movements at a high level, right? So there's no way that I'm going to deadlift as much weight as possible for exercise number one, and then perform super, super well on my vertical pull downs or my horizontal rows, right? So I would rather train my back through its full range of motion under load rather than perform an exercise that is basically a really heavy isometric for the back. And it's actually concentrically training your quads and hamstrings and glutes uh, more so than any muscle in your back. So um, I think for those focused on hypertrophy, uh, it's just a very silly mistake that I see quite regularly where it's like you're programming more like a, a power, power lifter, but you know, your primary focus is bodybuilding. So your program should kind of be in line with what your goal is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's really hard for people to let go of those, uh, especially letting go of the ego, you know, because they want, they want their numbers and sure. it's hard to give that up when you're kind of planning, you know, planning for your future. The hypertrophy is a very slow process and yeah. um, it's really something you've got to plan for in advance. And especially as you get more advanced, these things become more of an issue. Absolutely. I think as a beginner, I mean, you're, you're lifting so little that it doesn't make that much of a difference globally, but as you become stronger, a deadlift becomes very, very disruptive. Yep. And if you look at, you know, the quality of the volume you're getting out of it for your back, it's probably not ideal. Agreed. In terms of going off of the, the stretch movements, there was a recent review in mass on a study that showed people who, um, cut out the top range or the, the shortened state of a, of a movement or that, that shortened range of motion had a little bit better hypertrophy. Um, and just one of my subscribers wanted to bring it up. What are your thoughts on kind of partials and applications and just in general? Interesting. Yeah. There's been a decent amount of research over the past five, six years that has demonstrated movements that kind of emphasize that stretch position to be superior. So there was a study recently that compared the seated hamstring curl to a lying hamstring curl. Um, and the coolest thing about that study was it was a within subject design. So they actually had the same subject perform a seated hamstring curl with one hamstring and a lying oh, no. hamstring curl with the other. <laughs> yeah. But that's perfect for like actually controlling your results because you can't say that like that person's genetics are the same. So the amount of growth that occurred in, you know, their left hamstring versus their right hamstring, I am way more confident to say it was because of the exercise selection, not because of their protein intake or their sleep or their genetics, right? So comparing those results, like 
as a researcher, that gives me way more confidence than as if it was a, you know, two different groups per se, mm. rather than two different conditions. So anyway, that showed that the seated hamstring curl was superior. And again, the seated hamstring curl has your hips in a flexed position. So your hamstrings are more lengthened. Um, and there's been previous research showing too, that it kind of, uh, upregulates like IG, like uh, growth factors. And there's a kind of like an acute hormonal response that can be advantageous to doing stretch, uh, stretch focused lifting. Um, and then there's that whole topic of intraset stretching and there's some literature pointing to, yeah, just loaded stretches also induce muscle growth, especially in novice trainees. So it does seem to be like there's something there. Um, the thing that I find a little bit conflicting is that about 10 years ago, we used to believe that mechanical tension was the primary driver of muscle hypertrophy. And we still believe that is the case. Um, but we also used to give a decent amount of credit to muscle damage. Mm -hmm. Um, and then over the years, a lot of researchers are now saying, uh, maybe muscle damage isn't that important. Um, mm -hmm. again, I don't think muscle damage is, uh, at least a high level of muscle damage is necessary for growth, but I do think that there's something there that can be advantageous or maybe lead to superior growth because all of these movements that are overloading the stretch position most likely create more muscle damage. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that is why we're seeing greater hypertrophy from those exercises or those movements. Um, I do think partials have a place again, as long as the program is designed in a logical fashion. Um, I still think it's important to train a muscle throughout its entire range of motion within the entire training session or within your entire uh, you know, program itself or mesocycle itself, but it doesn't necessarily have to happen within one session. Um, I'll provide a quick example. Sorry, I'm, I'm rambling here. Yeah, no, it's great. So like um, on my pull days, obviously I'm focused primarily on back movements and then I hit one bicep exercise. Um, on that pull day, I generally do select a bicep movement that overloads the biceps in its stretch position. So it can be like an incline dumbbell curl. Mm -hmm. So that long head is really stretched. Um, and I'm selecting that based on what this research is kind of suggesting that if I am going to do one exercise that day, I might as well select the one that may be most hypertrophic. Right. Um, so that is because on that day, I'm only doing one bicep movement, but on a day I'm training arms, like I, I might pair chest and arms together or shoulders and arms together. I'm doing three bicep movements and then one movement is in its shortened position, one movement's in the mid range, and then one movement's in the lengthened. Um, so yeah, as long as it makes sense within your program and you have like solid logical reasoning as to why you're doing partials, I think they're absolutely appropriate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I like that. I think that just thinking about having, having the variety when you have the, when you can afford it, um, and making sure you have the, the, the bare bone basics, you know, the, the full range of motion exercise, the probably including something with a lengthened position exercise. I just want to take a moment and plug Chris's book on the ultimate guide to body recomposition. It's a really good, uh, diet and general programming resource for people. 
um, that I've read myself. It's it's written with Jeff Nippert. It's very high quality information. Where can people find that, by the way? Thanks, my man. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, you guys can find that on my website. So it's just schoolofgains.com and gains is spelled with a Z. <laughs> um, so yeah, you guys can check that out there. It's uh, primarily nutrition focused, exactly how to set up and optimize your diet for both performance and recovery. And then obviously for body composition outcomes as well. Yeah, sweet. Thanks, Just man. for all the students of the gains. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and uh, you guys can use code uh, Dr. Swole and I'll set that up for 15% off for you guys. <laughs> sweet. All right, guys. Yeah. So moving on, I wanted to zoom out a little bit to talk about microcycle design. So just kind of setting up your training week. And I guess a, a common question that initially would come up in this kind of discussion is the concept of daily undulating periodization, or I guess more colloquially applied to bodybuilding, just alternating rep ranges throughout the week. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's totally appropriate. Um, I think you can do it within one training session or you can do it throughout the week and, and change it up, um, you know, from a training session to training session. Um, I personally do implement that. So right now I kind of have three different training days. So I, I just call them day A, day B, day C. My A days are generally speaking uh, higher intensity, lower volume. So it's going to be lower rep ranges, but everything I do right now is hypertrophy focused. So I'm not doing like singles, triples, or fives basically ever. Um, um, the heaviest I really lift is like a, a, a six repetition goal is like the heaviest I go. Hmm. Um, so I do have days where I'm kind of focused more so on that six to 10 rep range. And then I have other days where I might be doing things like eight to 15 work. And then I have other days where I do stuff that's more like 12 to 20 work. So more metabolic stress. Um, so I do think there's reason to do so. Um, and again, we don't really know if it's super important to separate that stimulus and have a strength day, a hypertrophy day, a metabolic stress day, or if you can kind of just do that within one session where, you know, you do your compound lift super heavy, but then at the end of the workout, you do isolation work uh, at a higher rep range, or you're doing supersets or advanced techniques to create a different kind of stimulus. So um, I do think it's, uh, it makes sense to program it, but from a hypertrophy standpoint and like a, a research-based standpoint, we really don't have too many concrete answers there. A lot of it's speculation. Yeah. Um, but obviously bodybuilders have been doing that for the past 30 to 50 plus years. Um, and I've gotten good results. So that's kind of where we uh, create our questions from is what pre people have previously done and what people are currently doing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess the, I really liked the idea of the kind of, yeah, DUP model, but I guess the disadvantage of it is that you, people probably notice that when you do a lot of metabolic work, you get very fatigued and the, the, as the metabolites build up, it gets, it's difficult to maintain your performance in that kind of rep range. So like, say you're doing sets of twenties, you'll probably find that after a few sets of those, that your muscles are screaming. Yeah. And I, I, I see that as a potential disadvantage, I guess, if you were trying to program it in terms of, okay, we're doing a strength day and then we're going to do a metabolic day where it's like all our sets for, you know, the, a 20 set workout are all going to be sets of 15 to 20 or something like that. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's interesting though. So those, 
sessions can be really acutely fatiguing, but the next day I don't feel as wrecked compared to like a really heavy day. Um, so it seems like, you know, something locally is the, the stimulus that we're getting locally at the muscle is way different compared to what we're capable of recovering from, um, in terms of our entire body over the, you know, 24 to 48 hour period. So I think as long as you take all these things into consideration when programming and you see how you respond and how you recover, um, it can be applied appropriately. Um, something I'm doing now more than ever is I'm taking more rest days than ever. And my, my training frequency as a whole has gone down because I'm really prioritizing rest, um, which I haven't done in the past. So, you know, maybe we can chat about that a bit too. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. Actually, it's something I've noticed because initially, I guess I went through a phase where I discovered volume, you know, and I was like, oh man, I've got to do more volume. So I like jumped up my program to, you know, five and then six days a week. Yep. And I actually, I didn't find my results improve. Um, in fact, at, at six days a week, it started to dip off a little bit. And I realized that the, the importance of rest for myself. So I've, I've kind of found a sweet spot with four days a week training for myself, which I, I do relatively long workouts. I train with high intensities and I also have a pretty um, stressful lifestyle, I guess, in general, which kind of contributes to it. But yeah, I think it's important for people to think about how more is not always better sure. and how, a lot of a lot of things that you see online where people are you know training twice a day ifbb pros doing these crazy high volume workouts might not necessarily be for you and as much as we love to talk about volume training that uh there is a sweet spot yeah 100 percent. so you know in the future i want to transition to like four days per week like you're currently doing um, right now it's a little different for me because i basically do two days on one day off two days on one day off um, so it doesn't line up in the seven day week or whatever, mm -hmm. but again, it doesn't matter. Um, I basically rest when I need, um, every once in a while, I actually rest for more than one day. Like I take two or three consecutive rest days if I feel really trashed. Um, and the, the biggest change is like before, if I woke up that day and it was supposed to be a training day, or if my my training program said, okay, you train three days on one day off. I was training three days on one day off, even if I felt exhausted, I got poor sleep. I didn't want to go to the gym. I would just force myself to go to the gym and thought I was being hardcore by sticking to my guns and forcing myself to train. But, you know, eight out of the 10 times I would do that, those training sessions would suck. Um, I wouldn't progress on that training session and maybe I regressed or maybe I maintained numbers, but I wasn't able to get better. So was it actually worth it? Probably not. Um, every once in a while, there is that rare occurrence where you feel like shit, but you force yourself to go to the gym and you still have an amazing training session. That's kind of odd. I think that's when you kind of just dig in mentally and you kind of go to a place and get the job done. So basically what I was saying right now, I'm taking more rest days than ever. Um, I'm actually valuing that very common saying of listening to your body. I'm actually trying to put that into practice. Whereas in the past, I would just force myself to train um, because I thought it was hardcore and just had that, that mindset or mentality where it's like, hey, even if you don't feel good, you got to get in the gym and get it done. But those sessions were the ones where I wasn't able to progress. 
Um, and I'm sure you know this, man, like you go to the gym tired, you put on a 45 pound plate and that 45 pound plate feels like it's 90 pounds. And you're like, this is going to be a long day. This is going to be a tough session. You just yeah. kind of feel right away where it's like, man, you probably should take a nap or just not be in the gym and do something to help you recover. So yeah, I'm just, uh, training less frequently than ever, but really focusing on quality over quantity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, I think, and it also kind of comes with experience. I feel where as a beginner, it might not necessarily be as easy to gauge where you're at in terms of um, your actual fatigue level and your subsequent performance. But as you become more experienced, especially when you become more experienced, you are able to produce more damage in every session and create more fatigue. So I think that it's sometimes when people become more advanced, their you know, absolute volume requirements might actually go down to some extent as they're able to learn how to exhaust the muscle more with every set. I agree a thousand percent in regards to the number of working sets you need to do as you become more advanced is lower compared to higher. Um, and a lot of people don't agree with that because the scientific literature doesn't quite support that yet. But again, you need to look at the demographic of the people being investigated. A lot of times, especially in our lab, we have well-trained individuals that can squat, you know, over 1.5 times their body weight, but they're college age students that have been lifting for three to five years. They're not highly advanced bodybuilders that have been lifting for seven, eight, nine, ten 10 plus years. So there's a difference there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think a probably a good example would be like back training where initially for myself, um, you know, doing lat pull downs was probably a totally different exercise from the way I do them now. Mm -hmm. And when you start understanding your own body's mind muscle connection and really being able to execute muscle uh, exercises to target the muscle, you're just getting that much more stimulus out of every set. 100%. One last question I wanted to touch on in terms of microcycle design, which strays a little bit off from our hypertrophy talk, but would be to touch on power building. Mm -hmm. And in terms of microcycle design for power building, like how would you ideally set up someone's uh, program going into a power building setup? Say if they're more like beginner to intermediate type and maybe they're training something like four or five days a week. Sure. Yeah, so in that case, if, if the goal is power building, uh, obviously they are going to be doing the big three. And in that case, I would prioritize those lifts early in the session, you know, probably first in the session, um, just to ensure that they're performing that movement when they're as fresh as possible and they're able to produce the greatest amount of output um, rather than being pre-fatigued in any sense, whether it's from an isolation lift or... Um, from other compounds beforehand. So yeah, um, obviously prioritizing that exercise first and foremost is going to be key. And then also moving through different uh, intensities throughout your, your mesocycle. So, you know, on some days, it's probably going to be wise to do something within that one to five rep range if your goal is absolute strength. Um, and then I would definitely program in like power work where you're using anywhere from 40 to 60% of your one RM and you're just doing speed work, um, focused on maximal velocity. Um, however, obviously lifting lighter loads. So that's going to be more of a technique day, more of a power day. Um, 
a day where you're trying to improve your rate of power development. So how quickly can you turn on all of your motor units to uh, basically fire at once to maximize force output? And then there, there should be a pretty good transfer over in regards to your one RM or your absolute strength. Um, so definitely, you know, do some, some sort of power training and velocity based training there, and then ensure that you're doing your hypertrophy work, um, that is going to support your big three lifts, right? So, um, that can be doing something as simple as, okay, I understand that having really strong, you know, gluteus max is really going to help both my squat and my deadlift. So somewhere within my program, I want to, I want to have glute bridges or hip thrust programmed in there to really train hip extension and get my glutes as strong as possible. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things to take into consideration, but to kind of just, you know, put out some general bullet points, make sure you're actually doing specificity work in that absolute strength range. Make sure you're doing power work and speed work to maximize rate of power development, and then make sure your accessory work provides you with a really good stimulus to fatigue ratio. I guess that's where I can talk a little bit more. You want to make sure that your accessory work that is focused on hypertrophy isn't that centrally fatiguing and it's mm -hmm. very like localized fatigue on that target muscle. So you're not tapping into all of your energy reserves for all your lifts and you're kind of sparing that just for the big three and then really being uh very targeted and specific for your accessory lifts. Oh yeah. No, that's really interesting, Ashley. Yeah. I think that when people say power building, they kind of think of, you know, like doing heavy squat and deadlift type movements for, you know, just jacking up the volume and doing, you know, uh, like 20 or 30 sets a week of that, but, yeah. uh, that it's actually smarter to kind of partition things out and use your your specific movements to train strength and get volume on less fatiguing exercises for sure and and something that you mentioned before you want to make sure you're progressing while doing like the least amount of taxing work so when dup got really popular a lot of people were trying to squat bench and deadlift like three times per week and it absolutely wrecked them mm -hmm. uh, and powerlifting is not my wheelhouse but i you know listen to some experts in that field and I know a lot of people that still only deadlift once per week, um, but they squat twice a week and they bench twice a week. Again, as long as your deadlift is progressing, you don't necessarily need to increase frequency there um, because you might just kind of increase wear and tear on those joints. And then if you get injured, now you're sidelined and you're not making any progress. So, um, you know, increasing frequency or increasing volume isn't just the only way to go about things. And sometimes it's not even the smart way to go about things. So uh, be careful with kind of how you go about that. Yeah. Nice. Really good points. So yeah, I just wanted to wrap up with a fun question that I took from our Facebook group. And that is uh, what's a pet peeve of yours in the gym or with clients? Uh, that's a great question. A pet peeve of mine in the gym. Um, I dislike training environments that don't encourage hard work. <laughs> I currently train at, unfortunately, like I train at two gyms. One's a commercial LA fitness down the street from me because it's down the street from me and it's very time efficient for me. Um, but I literally feel like 
people go there to socialize and not train. Um, and when someone is there training, they're looking at you like you're crazy and like you should be training somewhere else because you're training too hard kind of thing. Um, so I guess I wish everyone either minded their business or encouraged hard work rather than like, I don't know, gave you the side eye for training hard, you know? And then I train at another gym where it's, you know, quote unquote, hardcore bodybuilding. And like, if you're not training hard, they're going to tell you like, get the fuck out of there. So um, that's like the opposite side of the spectrum. Um, but yeah, I wish everyone kind of just stayed in their own lane and feel like the gym can be a very judgmental uh, environment. So I guess that alone is a little frustrating, but that'll be a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that, that those times when it, you know, it's great having friends in the gym and you meet lots of people, but then sometimes when they come over and like, they keep talking, it's just like, Oh man, I got to get to my sets here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That 90 minute session turns into like two hours and a half and you're like, damn, I got to get home. Yeah, exactly. So anyways, that was a really productive session, Chris. And I think that people are going to take a lot of value for this. Um, where can people find you? Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, you guys can find me on again, schoolofgains.com. Um, there's some, you know, a lot of free resources there. So articles, videos, um, I, I have been kind of documenting this contest prep a little bit. So you can kind of catch up on that. Those YouTube video series is on there. Um, and then on Instagram, I'm most active. I don't, I don't really use any other social media. So Instagram, just my full name, it's at Christopher.barricat. And uh, you guys can kind of see my publications there or different resources there and uh, kind of stay up to date with whatever work is in the works. Awesome. So yeah, I'll put links in the description. And thanks again for being on the show. Thank you very much, man. Thanks for having me. That's all for now, guys. Thanks for listening. I am available on a very limited basis for one-on-one -on -one coaching. I'm not cheap, but if you are really serious about taking your physique to the next level, DM me the word coaching on Instagram. For more science-based bodybuilding content, look up Dr. Swole on YouTube, and we'll see you next time.